1947, shortly after the war, a rumor spread that Ford Motor Company would give a Ford, a Ford automobile, in exchange for every copper penny dated 1943. The rumor spread so fast that the Ford offices all over the country were jammed. There was thousands of requests for information about this deal. The U.S. Mint also received a large volume in, of inquiries as thousands of people were going through their jars of pennies, going through their pockets, going through their drawers, looking for a 1943 copper penny. It all turned out to be a hoax, as you can imagine. The statistics of the mints show that in 1943, there were over a billion pennies minted, but they weren't made of copper. Due to the copper shortage during World War II, the pennies were made of steel zinc. They were zinc-coated steel. So the number of 1943 coppers pennies minted in 1943 was exactly zero. Now there's been a rumor spread abroad in the human race for centuries that entrance into heaven comes by doing good works. But it's not true. It's a great hoax. The fact is that there are no works made on earth that are acceptable in heaven. In the history of the world, not a single person has gotten into heaven based on their good works, nor will anyone make it in the future. All of our works are tainted with sin. The only righteousness that gains entrance into heaven is the righteousness we are given in Christ Jesus, who graciously credits to our account or imputes to us his righteousness imputed to those who believe. Now, when I was a kid and collected pennies, I was also looking for a 1943 penny. Not the copper penny of the great hoax, but it was heard that the Denver Mint had mistakenly minted, minted one or more pennies made out of bronze. So down in the lower right-hand corner of the bronze penny, you would see the stamp 1943D meaning it had been minted in Denver in 1943 and it would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars even in the 50s or 60s. Now, one of the reasons we knew that this was true is because we had a coin collection book that gave all the values of different pennies and their conditions, and the book was written by Arlie Slaybaugh. Don't know Arlie? Don't know how I'm related to Arlie? But we knew that it had to be true because the Slaybaugh had said it was true. We believed it was out there and we wanted to be the ones to find it. We went through all kinds of, of pennies. And, uh, well, in, in the famous 1943 D bronze did finally surface. And I want to read from an article published in 2010, 2010, just a few years ago. It says, the only known 1943 dated Lincoln scent mistakenly struck at the Denver Mint on a bronze planchet has been sold for a record $1.7 million. See, that's why we're looking for it. By legend numismatics of Lincroft, New Jersey. The unique coin, not publicly known to exist until 1979, is certified, and then it gives the number. The new owner is a southwestern United States business executive who wants to remain anonymous. Zinc-coated steel was used for producing cents in 1943 to conserve copper for other uses during World War II. But a small number of coins were mistakenly struck on bronze planchets left over from 1942. We estimate, it says, that less than 20 Lincoln cents were erroneously struck in bronze at the Philadelphia and San Francisco mints in 1943, 
but says this is the only known example from the Denver Mint, explained Don Willis, president of Professional Coin Grading Service. He says the 1943 bronze cent is the most valuable cent in the world, and it took four years of aggressive negotiations with the coin's owner until he agreed to sell it, said Lua Loras Spurper, president of Legend Numismatics. The new owner, it says, is a prominent Southwestern business executive who's been collecting since he was a teenager, searching through pocket chains, looking for rare coins. As a youngster, he actually thought he had found a 1943 copper cent in circulation, but it was not authentic. He still has that one in his desk drawer, but now he's the only person to ever assemble a complete set of genuine 1943 bronze cents, one each from Philadelphia, Denver, and the San Francisco Mint, said Sperber. The anonymous collector who formerly owned the coin donated it to a charitable organization so they could sell it with all the proceeds going to charity. And then it goes on. Uh, the one person says, as a specialist in small sense, this transaction is the ultimate accomplishment for me, and I'm privileged to be a part of it. I don't think it'll ever be duplicated in my lifetime, he says. End of story? No. In 2012, another 1943 D bronze penny surfaced. It was bought by the same business executive who turns out to be Bob Simpson, who owns the Texas Rangers Baseball Club in, uh, in uh, Texas. So a second 1943 D bronze surfaced, and he bought this one for $1 million. What's the point? Every rumor, every hoax has a kernel of truth. And they build on the falsehood related to that truth. It wasn't the copper penny of 1943, and Ford had nothing to do with it. It was a particular bronze rare penny of great worth, which now there are at least two known. Are there any more? Go home, check your pennies. But it kind of sounds like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Well, this morning we're going to mine the riches of Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. These verses speak of the true treasure, the true treasure of saving faith. What does authentic saving faith look like? How do you know that you possess the genuine article or you bought into something else? How do you know that what you have is not part of the great hoax? What's its true value? How do you obtain it? And these questions are important because your eternal destiny, your joy, your security depends on your understanding and personally believing the truth that Paul has been hammering in Romans chapter 4. That we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous by faith alone. We are justified by works, we are not justified by works, we're not justified by our moral behavior, but rather by faith in God who credits righteousness to the ungodly apart from works. And the blessing is not based on keeping certain religious rituals or on keeping the law, and all that only serves to condemn us. So, rather, Paul is going to show us in this passage, first of all, that saving faith is rooted in God's grace. Secondly, it rests on God's favor, or rests on God's promise. 
Thirdly, it, reveal, it revels in God's glory, revels in God's glory. And lastly, it relies on God's power. Paul has been arguing in, in this chapter, and we've seen this a lot, that Abraham, whom the Jews rightly extolled as the father of their faith, was justified by faith alone, by not being circumcised, by not keeping the law. And as such, Abraham is not only the father of believing Jews, but also of Gentiles who believe. And so now Paul expounds the nature of Abraham's faith as an example for all of us. So first of all, we see that saving faith is rooted in God's grace, not in human performance. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 4, the 16th verse. 16th verse of this fourth chapter, page 1384. And after Paul has pointed out that the law brings wrath, not salvation, he continues in verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed, hang on to that word for a little bit, guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For this reason it's by faith. What, by what reason? The reason follows in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Grace. That's the only way we could ever be saved. You can't earn salvation or justification by performing certain rites and rituals. You can't earn it by law-keeping. So it has to be by faith. It's a gift of, of grace. Now there's a promise of justification and the inheritance that comes with it. The promise of all the blessings of eternal glory come only by grace. So that, that promise, I want you to look at verse 16 a minute here. What? It says, will be guaranteed. Will be guaranteed. See that? So the promise will be guaranteed to all this descendants. So here we, we start to hit on the nature of saving faith. It's guaranteed. Now, if, if it's by works, by our works, nobody gets a guarantee, right? If you have to earn your justification by works, it's up to you to earn it. Then it's pretty obvious that you could also forfeit it. You could blow it at any point. And so the religions that teach you that you have to earn your way cannot teach and don't teach that having earned your way, you're secure forever. They can't teach that because it's all up to you. Your own works. And your own works aren't very good collateral, are they? So let's think for a moment about how the guarantee worked for Abraham, who was the model. He was the prototype of the one to whom faith was credited to him as righteousness. And I like the way that S. Lewis Johnson of Dallas Theological Seminary said this about the guaranteed promise. And I want to read quite a bit of what he said here. He said, When God gave the guaranteed promise to Abraham and all his descendants who are of faith of Abraham, I know that Abraham might have said, But Lord, suppose I get out of thy will. God says, I will bless thee. Abraham again. But Lord, suppose my posterity should become idolaters. I will bless thee and I will make of thee a great nation. Lord, suppose my descendants should crucify the seed when the seed should come. I will bless thee 
and thy seed. And then Dr. Johnson continues, says, now we look at it today and we say, we know the story. And we say, Lord, but suppose Abraham, to whom you've given these great promises, becomes a liar when he gets down in Egypt. And he says, Sarah is my sister, not my wife. God says, I will bless him. But suppose his grandson Jacob becomes a crook. And suppose he does the same thing that Abraham did. Suppose he sins constantly. I will bless thee. Suppose that great descendant David should come along and not only be guilty of adultery, but of murder also. I will bless thee. Suppose these descendants shall crucify the Son of God. I will bless thee. But why, Lord? Because I am the God that will through my servant one day write, If you believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And then all we can say is, But Lord, that is grace without merit. Ah, yes, that's exactly it. It's unmerited grace. And then Dr. Lewis, in his words, immediately applies it and says it this way. And my dear friend, if you are sitting in this audience, and if you know the God of Scripture, and you know that you are saved by unmerited grace, it's not your faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness in His whole program from electing grace down through the cross and on through the operation of the Holy Spirit who works in the lives of individuals, brings them home to their sin, brings them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as Abraham brings them to the foot of our great Savior God, praising Him for the grace that He manifested to unworthy, guilty, unrighteous, despicable sinners, which is what we are. When I read something like that, I always say, when I grow up, I want to preach like that. (laughs) That is good stuff. Abraham then may be the greatest character in the Bible. He's the illustration of grace magnificent. Justification by example is not by ordinances and by any works of the law. And only then may we have the assurance of our salvation. And saying what we sang last week, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. The soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So first of all, saving faith is rooted in God's grace. Secondly, it's rooted or it rests in God's promise. Saving faith rests in God's promise no matter how unlikely it may seem. Verse 17, Paul continues, As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you, speaking of Abraham, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. You remember the story we talked a little bit about last week. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was 99 years old. Although God had promised to give him a son through Sarah almost 25 years before, they still had no son. Now the human prospects of having a son seemed impossible. Abraham was almost 100. Sarah was about 90. She had been barren all of her life, and now both of them were way past the age of conceiving a child. In fact, Romans says that Abraham was as good as dead. At this point, the Lord appeared to Abraham and promised to establish the covenant with him, which included making him the father of a multitude of nations. 
In light of this, God gave Abram a new name. Up to this time, his name Abram meant exalted father. Exalted father. The name Abraham means a father of a multitude. But think about this for a moment. Abram sojourned at the crossroads of the Middle East. He became wealthy from dealing with the travelers and traders that came through. And suppose somebody asked Abram, well, what's your name? And he answered, Abram. And those who spoke the language knew that it meant exalted father. Oh, great, Abram. How many children do you have? Zero. But God has promised to give me many, says this old man, pushing 80, 90, 100 years old, good as dead. There would have been chuckles around the campfires and in the tents of them, there are parts. Then when Abram is 99 years old and as good as dead, God changes his name to the father of a multitude. You know, so he's 100 years old. He has a son, Isaac. He's the father of a multitude. Somebody asks, how many kids you got, father of multitude? Well, well I got one. <laughs> God said, a father of many nations, I have made, past tense, I have made you. As Abraham stood there before God, although the promise was outside the realm of any human possibility, Abraham believed God whom Paul describes in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is not saying that faith is, is without struggles. Faith is not without struggles. The point is, Abraham believed God's promise, even though fulfillment of it was humanly impossible and seemed very unlikely. But there's something here we don't want to miss. To believe in God's promise is the same as believing in God's person. To believe in his promise is the same as believing in his person, who he is. If, if I promise to do something for you, but you don't believe my promise, why don't you believe it? Because of the jerk I am, <laughs> who I am. You're, you're not going to say, and in fact, you're calling me a liar. You're really not going to do that because this is the kind of person you are. And so if we don't believe God's promise, it's a personal affront to God himself. We're saying, God, you won't do what, what you promised. And if God promises something and we refuse to believe it, in effect, we've called God a liar. Yet, verse 18, In hope against hope, Abraham believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. It's the nature of saving faith in that it rests in the promise of God, no matter how unlikely it may seem. And thirdly, saving faith revels in God's glory. It revels in God's glory. It revels in God's glory, not in human effort or willpower. Verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Giving glory to God. Abraham's faith was solidly God-centered. Abraham didn't believe anything in himself. 
He didn't have faith in faith as so many people teach today that if you could just muster up enough faith and you can believe it, then you believe it, then it has to, then it has to take place. There was a, a common phrase going around when, when I was young and in college. I don't know if I'll get it, get it exactly right. This is what people were teaching, that if you can conceive it in your mind and believe it in your heart, it has to come to pass. And so what we were doing, we were putting pictures of cars and stuff. I wasn't, but they were putting pictures of cars and houses on their refrigerator. And they'd get up in the morning, okay, I conceive it in my mind. Now I got to do is believe it in my heart. And, uh, you know, then it has to come to pass. You know, Abraham didn't think, if Sarah and I just visualize the goal and try again, we'll succeed. Rather, he, looking away from the circumstances... And away from himself, he believed God and his promise, and therefore God got the glory. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, you don't need to turn back to it, but we, we saw the fundamental sin of the human race as we began this portion of Scripture. It says, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But here, by way of contrast, Abraham grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He grew strong. He grew. This, this teaches us that our faith should grow. Weak faith or little faith is still faith. But we should grow strong in faith. And the Greek verb here is passive. It's saying that Abraham wasn't the actor here. He didn't strengthen his own faith. But his faith was strengthened in faith. It implies that faith must come from God. Faith is God's gift to us. God is the one who strengthens our faith. Abraham didn't strengthen it himself, but yet like so many gifts of God, which faith is a gift, the Bible tells us, we have a responsibility to receive it, to appropriate it, and to grow in it. So the question is, so how do we grow in faith? I'm glad it's not like patience. You know, Lord, give me patience. You know, you're going to have to be patient in a lot of things. Faith doesn't quite work that way. Because the key to growing in your faith is to grow in the knowledge of the object of your faith. The key to growing in the faith is to grow in our knowledge of God, who is the object of our faith. Faith is only as good as its object. This last week, somebody put up on Facebook a really neat picture of a bridge because it's the Rainbow Bridge on Highway 55 as you're going up towards to Cascade and McCall and the road gets narrow and you come across that uh, concrete bridge and it's, uh, it's a narrow bridge. And uh, the cool thing was the, the guy who posted it, it showed the bridge under construction and it had all this scaffolding and wood and timbers holding it up as they were pouring concrete and those kind of things. And the cool thing was that my grandfather, Lee Slaybaugh, worked on that bridge in 1933. He also worked on Black Canyon Dam. You know, so it got me thinking about bridges. You can have strong faith in a faulty bridge, right? And it will collapse under you in spite of your strong faith. You could say, I believe that bridge is going to hold me. I'm going to do this. And you go across the bridge and it's not going to work. Or you can have weak faith in a strong bridge that it will hold you up. And when that logging truck comes around the corner the other direction and comes down next to you and you feel the whole thing shaking as the logging truck comes by, as I've felt that several times even on that bridge, your weak faith then does not glorify 
the strong bridge for what it is. The bridge is the object of your faith, and it's weak faith. It can be a strong bridge. So the right way to have strong faith that glorifies the bridge, as it were, is to know that the engineer who designed it is competent, and the company that constructed it and your grandpa who worked on it had a solid reputation. They did a good job. They didn't cut corners. Your knowledge of that bridge then would increase your faith in that bridge, right? Because you know how it was built and you know who built it. Even though it may go over, you know, that big chasm with the river flowing below with, with rocks and everything else. Your strong faith stems from your knowledge that that is a trustworthy bridge. And so the bridge, not your faith, gets the glory. So how do you grow in faith? How is your faith strengthened? The way to grow in faith in God is to study God. To study God. Study God's attributes. You know, do that on your own time. Get one of, there's lots of books that have been written on the attributes of God. You know, He is love, He is grace, He is mercy, He is omniscient, omnipresent, all the, the big words. Study His ways as revealed in His Word. See how he has been faithful to his word in the past. See how he's been faithful to the promises he has made. How many promises has God broken? None. Study those promises. See how he's fulfilled them. See how he kept his promises to his people in the face of staggering odds against them. Read how he's acted in the history of the Bible. Read the history of his saints who have trusted him over the years. Get to know their stories. One of the reasons we're doing our third Sunday movie night and so we get to know these stories and see their faith in God and see who God is in spite of the struggles they faith. Witness their faith, the God who is faithful. In some cases, he delivered them miraculously. At other times, they were tortured, as Hebrews says, thrown in prison, stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword. I got a whole stack of third Sunday movie nights videos that are just really good. True stories about true Christians from all over the world. And I was looking at one the other day and go, oh, he died. Yeah, he, they, they martyred him. Yeah, they, they killed him. You know, and we struggle with that. But uh, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that per through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And in no case did God ever abandon his people or act unfaithfully to his promises. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, you don't need to turn to it, but that portion of scripture tells us that God has a precise number of martyrs who will be killed before he finally judges the wicked. But the evil deeds of the wicked did not threaten God's sovereign power, threaten his plan, Study the attributes of God and His ways, and you'll grow in faith. Then put your faith into action. And as you act in faith and see God work, your faith is strengthened to trust Him the next time. But we, we need to be careful not to misapply His promises. John the Baptist was in prison, and he was confused because he thought that if he was the Messiah's forerunner, and Jesus was the Messiah, then he should not be in prison. And here's whom Jesus said is the greatest man to ever live, struggling with his faith because he was in prison. And through a messenger, Jesus gently assured John that 
Jesus was the Messiah. And as you know, John did not get out of prison alive. But even if God's will is our death, we can glorify him by dying in faith as we look to the promise of eternal life. Faith does not glory in human effort or human willpower, but rather in God alone. Salvation is totally from God, and so saving faith gives him all the glory. Thus, saving faith is rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It revels in God's glory. And finally, saving faith relies on God's power to keep his promise in spite of our human inability. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 4. Speaking of the faith of Abraham, And being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform, therefore is also credited to him as righteousness. These verses contrast Abraham's hopeless inability with God's mighty power. Abraham and Sarah were past their human ability to conceive a child, and even when they were in their prime, Sarah could not conceive. But God waited until they were clearly past all ability to conceive. Let him get way past it so that the greatness of the power would be in God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 19, as we read, Abraham contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness he contemplated of Sarah's womb. Now Abraham didn't close his eyes to the obvious. This, this is not some kind of blind faith that we say, okay, maybe what's really going on in my life is not real, but my faith is real, that kind of thing. Rather, Abraham faced the reality of his and Sarah's complete inability to conceive that promised son. When Paul says that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, he was looking at the overall pattern and final result of his life. He wasn't looking at Abraham's momentary lapses in faith. He wavered in faith when he took Hagar and conceived Ishmael and then asked God to make Ishmael the heir. That was lack of faith. But uh, the overall pattern of Abraham's life at key moments was that of faith. The phrase in hope against hope implies that Abraham's struggle of faith that he experienced and that everyone who walks by faith is going to face experiences. They're going to face the same kind of, of struggles. You know, circumstances often dash our hope, don't they? But against that, we fight back with hope because we have faith in God. Our faith and our hope, it's not in ourselves. It's not in our own ability or it's not in a positive attitude that everything turns out okay for good people in the end. No, our faith and hope are in God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. He renewed Abraham and Sarah's dead bodies to produce Isaac, the son of the promise. And he said, I have made you a father of many nations before Abraham had Isaac. You know, I thought of, you know, God's word said, let there be light and there was light. He called into existence that which did not exist. And then Paul applies this to our own salvation. When he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
The same God who called into existence that which does not exist speaks into our hearts, shines the light into our hearts, and brings into being that which does not exist. At least two things. Brings into being our faith and brings into our being, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Saving faith relies on God's promise, on God's power to keep his promises, not on any human ability. One of my favorite stories and I don't know if I've even told it here. I don't think I have. You know, I, I think of my best stories, and I can, I can almost picture who was there when I told it and what the circumstances were. Kind of a funny thing. But uh, one of my favorite stories is about a granny who had never flown on an airplane. But she had to make a trip by air. And her kids and grandkids all tried to convince her that it was safer than riding in a car. Finally, with a lot of misgiving, she got on board. And she, when she returned safely, the family met her at the airport and asked, How'd it go, Granny? Did the plane hold you up? She reluctantly agreed, Yeah. But then she added, But I never put my full weight down on the seat. <laughs> I said that to a lady once. She said, What do you mean by that? She didn't get it. She was about ready to fly. And I thought the story would help her, and it was just the wrong story to tell at the time. But could your faith in Jesus Christ be like that? You believe in him, but you're not putting your full weight in him. You're also still keeping one foot, as it were, in your good works to try to get you into heaven. You're still somewhat trusting in the great hoax, just in case it might be true after all. But you really don't fully trust in it. Saving faith puts all its weight on Jesus Christ and His shed blood. All the weight. It's rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It revels in God's glory. And it relies on His power. We must make sure that our trust is in Christ and Christ alone. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the, the measure of faith that the Scripture tells us you have given to each one of us, Lord. Except by your grace and by your coming to us through your Holy Spirit, we have nothing in ourselves. We don't have anything in ourselves to, to even respond to your call to, to believe in Jesus Christ. Father, every time you save a soul, and your Holy Spirit comes and indwells in them. Father, it's just as much a miracle as that time when you said, let there be light. And there was light. Father, we thank you that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is shown into our hearts so that we might believe. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.